HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is made possible by you. HRN is a member-supported nonprofit, and our coverage is only possible thanks to your generous support. Learn more later in the show, or just go straight ahead to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome author, food and drinks editor for Esquire magazine, Jeff gordon In this episode, we're going to talk to Jeff about his new book, Hungry, The Rise of American Chef Culture, and we'll hear Jeff's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back in a second. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. There is no question in my mind that Julia Child was a key figure in helping elevate the status of chefs in America. Her sincere interest and support of the creative talent, cultural contributions that chefs make was a major part of what she did. While she's best remembered for her starring role in The French Chef and through that as a television cooking teacher, much of her later career involved meeting, learning from, and then promoting the work of emerging or also established American chefs. Many people forget that her later shows were called Cooking with Master Chefs. It was chefs teaching Julia and the audience, not Julia at the stove. This was something that Julia thought was valuable to increasing people's understanding of how to cook, what to cook, and improving society as a whole. In turn, Julia helped elevate the cultural importance of chefs. Someone with a like-minded reverence for the importance of chefs in society is Jeff gordon the food and drinks editor for Esquire magazine and author and contributor to the New York Times. Also, like Julia, he's a product of Southern California, but we won't hold it against him that he's been based in New York for many years. <laughs> His most recent book, just published, is Hungry, 
eating, road tripping, and risking it all with the greatest chef in the world. Jeff spent four years traveling with Rene Redzepi, the renowned chef of Noma, primarily between Copenhagen and Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. The results of this trek is a new book that's part portrait of a chef and part mouthwatering travelogue. He joins us today to enlighten us further about what makes a chef great. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks, Todd. It's an honor to be here, especially with the, the Julia Association, since I actually grew up in her hometown of Pasadena. Yes, well, we'll cover as many associations and overlaps <laughs> as we can in one awesome. episode. So l- let's start with, so how did you become Rene Redzepi's BFF? <laughs> well, he reached out to me. And it sort of changed my life. It was, a, it was a weird thing. I was in a dark moment in my life in the midst of a divorce. And imagine if you were in a dark place, Todd, and suddenly, out of nowhere, you got a call from Beyonce or Madonna. And she just wanted to hang. It was essentially like that, but with the gastronomic framework. Um, I got a, an email suggesting that Rene Redzepi wanted to get coffee with me in New York City, and I was inclined to say no. I was just depressed, and uh, I didn't really want to hear about, you know, get a pitch about his new cookbook and hear a whole spiel about the new Nordic manifesto, and I, I just wasn't in the in the mood for it, you know. But uh, you know, doing my due diligence as a, as a reporter, I decided let's just do this. We'll meet with him, and um, if have you ever met Rene Redzepi? I haven't. I haven't only read read about him. Well, he's a strikingly charismatic individual. He's he has a, a kind of aura, and it's um, everyone who meets him says this. Uh, he, he he kind of raises the energy level in the room. And as soon as I met him, I found myself sort of transfixed. And after a while, you know, he was like, "Oh, you're from you're from L.A. You you, you like tacos?" And I was like, "Oh, come on." Man. <laughs> Tacos? Really? You want to talk about, uh, you know, you, you want to open that? You know, let, let's talk about tacos. And so after a while, he's like, oh, you know, you and I, we should go to Mexico. And I was like, right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I just sort of entertained him. You know, I was like, all right, sure. I mean, there's no bu- media budget anymore. I can't really get an editor to greenlight a trip to Mexico. Um, and there's something very persistent and persuasive about Rene Redzep. And he, he sa- essentially wouldn't let it go. He just kept texting me, emailing me, when are we going to Mexico? We've got to go to Mexico together. And uh, strangely enough, I ran into an editor at the New York Times. It was at the New York Times then. And and my friend Whitney Vargas, she was an editor with me at uh, Details Magazine previously. Brilliant person. And um, Whitney said, what are you working on? And I said, well, what I'm not working on (laughs) is the coolest story ever, which is like a a trip through Mexico with Rene Redzepi. And she was like, the Noma guy? The, like, world's greatest chef guy? And I was like, yeah. She's like, oh, we'll pay for that. She was at T Magazine then. Uh, Deborah Needleman was the editor-in-chief of T. It's another magazine put out by the Times. Lo and behold, pretty soon I was I, I found myself in Mexico City. You know, I texted Renee back. I said, it, it looks like I actually am going to Mexico. He's like, I knew it. I knew it would happen. Um, he has a kind of cult leader quality like that. So pretty soon... You know, I did a piece for T Magazine about our trip to Mexico, and after a while, the texts and emails kept coming, and he would invite me to Copenhagen to eat at Noma, then he would say, why don't you come to Sydney for Noma, Australia? And uh, I 
I am inclined to say no because I have children and I don't have a lot of money. And, you know, logistically, it's, it's a nightmare to do these trips. But after a while, I stopped saying no. I just started saying yes. Uh, and from that, the entire book unfolds. And so forgive me, that, that time that he asked you and asked you about, had you, had you ever interviewed him or met with him before? No, I'd never met him. In fact, I had sort of dissed him in, in the New York Times. <laughs> I'd sort of made fun of the New Nordic movement in the New York Times, relevant to its impact in New York. This was 2014. At that time, you had a slew of restaurants in New York that were explicitly uh, influenced by the New Nordic movement, which I thought was a little ridiculous. I ended up going to some of these restaurants, Asuka from Frederick Berselius, Acme, which at the time was run by the chef Mads Refslund, who had actually founded Noma with Rene Redzepi in Copenhagen in 2003. Um, they were great restaurants, actually, but I thought there was something a little absurd about the new Nordic philosophy as applied to, you know, Brooklyn and Manhattan. So I kind of teased it a little bit. How, you know, I was like, oh, who's, who's craving lichen? You know, who, who's hungry for a bowl of pig's blood? You know, and um, curiously enough, Rene reached out to me about a week later. So um, I think there's something very savvy about him from a media standpoint. I think he sort of identifies detractors and tries to convert them. And perhaps I had been identified as a, as a prominent detractor. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, now... And, I, and, and you still don't know. He never told you and you never asked him why, or, or he never gave you a story. Maybe answer. he liked my writing. Maybe... Uh, Peter Tittiger at Fidon, his publishing house at the time, perhaps he liked my writing and identified me as somebody worth meeting. I don't really know. It, it seemed to happen organically, but looking back, I wonder if there was something more strategic about it. Um, I wrote the, the story about uh, Rene Redzepi's love affair with Mexico in 2014. In 2017, he did Noma Mexico, the, you know, the uh, <clears throat> incredible meal in Tulum. I wonder, in, in a way, if he was trying to plant the seeds to show people around the world that his connection to Mexico ran deep. You know, it's hard to say. Well, it paid off because I, I enjoyed the book immensely. It's oh, both be beautifully written and a fascinating um, journey. And what I really enjoyed about it is it's sort of a mashup of genres. It's a little bit hard to Put, and, and this is in a good way, put your finger on it, but I think that's what makes it more interesting. It's like kind of a portrait of a chef story, but then it, it's, it, it feels like a memoir and it's almost written like a friendship memoir, but that's not actually a big category. So is, is that what you set out to write or is that just what it evolved into? Yeah, it's all of the above, perhaps to the consternation of booksellers, to be honest. I, <laughs> I don't know exactly where they're going to stock the book in the travel section, in the food section, in the memoir section. I hope all of the above. I couldn't tell I was you. gonna say all three, yeah, right? Yeah, that Why would be bad. You? That would be ideal. I mean, um, a huge influence on me, you know, actually, it's interesting. I've seen some of the reviews. There's been a lot of positive reviews. And um, oftentimes, people invoke the name of the late, great Anthony Bourdain. Uh, I, I loved Tony, you know, as a reader, as a viewer, and personally, when I met him. I, I will be honest with you, though, that I was in no way trying to write a Bourdain-esque book. He wasn't really an influence on this. I think that would be a fool's errand to try to, you know, copy the tone of Anthony Bourdain. He was unique. Um, there was a person who's a huge influence in the book who's a, a British writer named Jeff Dyer, D-Y-E-R. 
He's a writer who specializes in these sort of genre mashups, right? He'll have books that are travel books, but memoirs, but sort of art criticism at the same time. Uh, One of my favorites is a book called Out of Sheer Rage, which is a book, a comedy book, essentially a humor book, about how Jeff Dyer can't seem to finish writing a book about the British writer D.H. Lawrence. So he gets an advance to write about D.H. Lawrence, but can't really come to grips with finishing the manuscript. That shouldn't work as a book. It's a masterpiece. I encourage everyone to buy Out of Sheer Rage. So I kind of wanted, I'm being honest with you, I kind of wanted to write a Jeff Dyerish book about Rene Redzepi um, that was intentionally a mishmash of all the different genres. So, and and was that an idea you had when you got on that first flight to to meet him or in Mexico, or was it something that sort of you figured out as you were putting all the material you had together? It was not an idea at that at the first point. I just wanted to write uh, the story for T magazine about our trip in Mexico, and I wanted to endure and survive my divorce. I mean, I did. I wasn't even thinking about a book about that. Um. <clears throat> Our relationship. And was it the tra- was it the travel portion and this sort of escape element that made you think, oh well, if I'm going far away, at least I can get my mind off my day to day. Oh, absolutely. Struggle. I'm a I'm an incorrigible escapist. I will say yes to any trip. You know, oh, do you want to go to Patagonia and hang out on Francis Mullman's island? Yes, yes, let's do that. You know, oh, do you want to go to South Korea? And meet Jean Quan, the Buddhist nun whom all these chefs revere. Yes, let's do it. Um, there was a moment where Rene invited me to Copenhagen, I believe for the second time. And I went over there. In Copenhagen, if you've been, everyone rides bicycles. And I mean, everyone. There's thousands of bicycles in the streets. And uh, everyone seems to have these wooden baskets at the front of the bicycles where they put their babies, right? They just put the kids in the baskets with the groceries and luggage or whatever, you know. And uh, so Rene had one of these bicycles with the baskets. He has three daughters. He asked me to get in it, to actually climb in the basket. And uh, he started riding me through the streets of Copenhagen, telling me a story about the city. It was mesmerizing, and it was funny. And then at a certain point, he drove, he sort of rode the bike around this corner in what looked like a wooded area right on the border of Freetown, Christiania, which is the anarchist neighborhood of Copenhagen. It is actually a lawless sector of the city. And I saw there a dump, this space that looked like something in Chernobyl. There was garbage piled everywhere. There was this kind of rotting bunker covered in graffiti. Uh, There were kids like skate punks going up and down a ramp. There was a a, a strong, strong scent of cannabis in the air and uh, kind of this fetid, brackish pond. And I was like, okay, what the hell's going on? And Renee said, welcome to the new Noma. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, I'm going to close the original Noma, which, as you know, had been celebrated as the best restaurant in the world and could have coasted for 50 years. And he was going to close that, blow it up, and build a new Noma on this kind of off-putting site. At that moment, Todd, I thought, I have a book. At that moment, I was like, okay, this guy is wild. This guy is really pushing the envelope. And the drama of this moment in Rene Redzepi's life needs to be chronicled somehow. You know what I mean? He's doing the pop-up in Mexico, the pop-up in Australia. 
His father was struggling with cancer. Rene himself was nearing 40. I just thought it was a pivot. It was a, an inflection point in this chef's life, and I had the privilege of chronicling it. I had access to him. I don't think I mentioned him at that point that I wanted to write a book, but along the way I did. And I, were you still sitting in the bicycle basket at that? No, I got out I eventually and walked around. Okay. <laughs> and then Wait, he, was it? I see that visual is so striking in in the way you write it. But was it ex, extremely uncomfortable? Or, it's not comfortable. You, know? you bounce around, yeah. And actually, Dave Chang has done the same thing. Has been placed in Rene Redzepi's baby basket on his bicycle. Now, Dave Chang's a you know a, a, a sizable man, so I, I wonder how that uh, how that happens. But um, well, well, Renee I guess knows it, a lot about Renee drama. Redzepi, he must be very strong because he's not a huge guy, right? No, he's, he's uh, yeah, he's uh, he is strong. He works out a lot. There's a whole scene in the book about his workout, which I endured once and never, <laughs> never again. Oh, my God. The horror. It's, it's very hard. <laughs> so I, I think the book, you know, really chronicles, um, you know, it it, it it portrays him, and I think everyone should read it who's particularly fascinated by him or interested in chefs. Because everyone it, should read it, period. <laughs> a really fascinating portrait. But I wanted to ask you, because I think there there's so much lore about him and about Noma and foraging and what he's doing next and, you know, w- what a genius he is. But I was curious what you think, because this isn't really in the book, but what do you think people typically misunderstand or misunderstand? interpret about him and what he's trying to do? That's a very good question. It is in the book in a way. I think that people who haven't eaten at Noma and haven't met Rene and haven't really plunged into his biography don't realize that he's not some Viking. Like his, his, his heritage is not Danish per se. His mother is Danish, but his father uh, was a Muslim immigrant from Macedonia who came to Denmark, worked as, worked as a taxi driver, a fishmonger. When Rene was growing up, uh, he confronted a lot of bigotry uh, in Copenhagen, and he also was often hungry at night. His family was working class, struggling to make ends meet. Rene worked as a paperboy, essentially, for years. Um, so people hear about the new Nordic movement, and they think about this Danish guy getting all this press, uh, and... I think they don't realize that what drives him is is more an outsiderness, you know? I, I think he's driven to remake Copenhagen in part based on um, a resentment, you know, of the way he was treated growing up in some cases. Um, and his, his wife, Nadine, actually is the daughter of uh, street musicians. Uh, she grew up on the streets of Lisbon and Paris, uh, playing the tambourine on a box. I mean, they're really fascinating people. They're, they're really a fascinating couple. Um, so I think that when people talk about the new Nordic movement, they're focusing on the Nordic part, when in fact there's, there's very little about Noma that is tied to Scandinavian tradition in terms of food. Really what it, you should focus on is the new. The newness is what he's brought to the city. He has created a cuisine, essentially tabula rasa, you know, like the food you eat at Noma has no connection really to French tradition, Japanese tradition, Chinese tradition, Italian tradition. It's not traditional 
at all. All of the foraging, all of the fermenting, the unique plating that they bring to the to the table, all of it reflects uh, an attempt to create a new kind of cuisine, you know. And and um, I think that's a remarkable thing, and it's very rare. I can't think of many examples. Yeah, no, I thought that that was also for me also very elucidating in, from reading the book because I didn't know any of that, and maybe I hadn't obsessed like some people over the Scandinavian ass. But that's obviously a critically important part of this person who's become the symbol of new Nordic and all of that is actually maybe he's technically half Nordic, but what you portray as his whole approach to it is not maybe other than ingredients or other than him being this person with something to prove. We said, I'm going to go to the region of the world with the least seasonal ingredients out of all the regions I could pick. And, you know, with the hardest challenge, I mean, obviously the great thing, and I, I've, my family has been going to near Tulum for a really long time. So I haven't spent as much time as Renee has there digging into it as much as I'd like to, but I have an appreciation for there and how it's it's also a tricky part of the world because, you know, at the surface it's full of luxury resorts and has been as Americanized as possible and that's how part of it was even designed. But if you go beyond the surface, it it has so many layers and the food is so interesting and exciting that that I loved the you know, you portray that contrast really well. And obviously that was something that was super fascinating to Renee, which I think is also great about another person demonstrating that Mexican food has just amazing variety and interesting facets. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I was growing up in Pasadena, there was a restaurant in Old Town Pasadena called Merida, and it was uh, the food of the Yucatan Peninsula. And it was my family's favorite restaurant. So I went there many, many times, um, and it's the first place I tried cochinita pibio, which is the incredible roast pork cooked with sour orange, usually cooked in a pit in the ground. Uh, there's a pivotal scene in Hungary that involves cochinita pibio, and it's one of Renee's favorite dishes. Um, uh, you know, to me, I, I, I can't quite explain it, but even since I was a teenager going to that restaurant, I felt uh, this connection to, to the Yucatan Peninsula and this obsession with their beautiful foodways, the incredible ingredients they have, the incredible recipes that go way back, you know, pre-colonial um, Mayan recipes. It, it's, it's really quite, quite astonishing. And, and, you know, just to, to echo what you asked before, it's, you know, when you go to Noma and you eat there, I've, people are surprised to see that it is, in fact, a global kitchen. The acclaim that Noma has attracted now for over a decade means that talented cooks from around the world want to work there. So you see people from Korea, Brazil, Italy, uh, Senegal, Mexico, uh, New York, all working in the kitchen together. It, it, so it's, it's not a Nordic kitchen at all. I mean, it's, it's really people from all over the world. Um, one of the lovely stories about Noma is there's a guy named Ali Sanko, who started in 2003, I believe, right at the beginning, as Noma's dishwasher. He's a Gambian Im- immigrant to Denmark. Uh, Ali has 12 children, and uh, he's, an, he's an amazing guy. And um, a couple of years ago, when Rene was planning to start building the new Noma, he named uh, a, a few people par- new partners in Noma, and Ali Sanko 
became one of the partners. So he's now a business partner in the enterprise, one of the owners of Noma. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's cool. Well, you know, I think the current global climate about migration and immigration, I think these stories are so powerful because while maybe you could say they're exceptions, I think each exception represented by these stories is actually, in my personal experience, more the norm. So, Yeah. I mean, like recently when there was this horrible, heartbreaking shooting at a, a mosque in New, New Zealand, um, you know, Rene Redzepi put on his Instagram a picture of a group of employees at Noma, including Ali Sanko. And he said, I just want everyone to know these are some of the beautiful Muslim people who work at Noma. Um, I thought that gesture, gesture was lovely. Indeed. So what do you think, um, before we go to break, I was curious, do you think, or maybe I'm out of the loop, but right, he sort of shut, the, the Noma in Tulum was kind of designed to be temporary. Is he going to go back there, or is there a never professional venture in the Yucatan on the horizon, or, or either what do you think is going to happen, or what have you heard? I think one of the themes readers of Hungary will notice is that Rene is allergic to moving backwards. I don't think he'll ever do the pop-up in Tulum again. I think that's part of what made the pop-up in Tulum so radiant, is this sense that this is happening now and it will never happen again. And even if it happened again, they couldn't recreate it in terms of the same ingredients and the same... They certainly wouldn't repeat the recipes because he never repeats recipes. Um, I suspect he's so restless, he's so driven that there, there will be other pop-ups on the horizon. I, I don't know where they will be. He hasn't told me. I have noticed him lately. I'm just surmising here. This is just speculation. But I've noticed him posting some images from the Middle East. And um, knowing Renee and how open he is to a challenge, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we saw a pop-up there somewhere in the Middle East, that which would be incredible. Um, but I, I'm not, you know... I'm not breaking news here. I don't know if that's that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> duly, duly noted. So on that note, though, it's kind of interesting because you're describing two people that in some ways are, are have a nomadic experience to their background or and even to their present. But do you do you see Renee and Nadine being still rooted, though, and remaining in Copenhagen and Noma being being a fixture there? Oh, yes. I think that his plan is to have Noma be present for this is going to sound crazy, but hundreds of years. It's actually on his mind. He thinks about it being a legacy for his family and for the city. Um, when, when well, okay, well that that's great to hear for all those who've been wanting to go. Who yeah, I mean, I don't yet. know if it'll still be the same restaurant. Maybe it'll become a school. Maybe it would become a, a gastronomic center of some sort. But I, I think he hopes that his daughters will inherit it and run it someday, and that it will become a fixture in Scandinavian society, um, which is, uh, he's really thinking ahead. You know, he, he often thinks about, like, I remember talking to him about something called, like, the Long Now Foundation, which I believe is, of course, based in San Francisco and is a, an organization devoted to far-reaching future thinking about the planet and about food and about sustainability. And, uh, you know, 
Rene is almost like a, a philosopher in that way. He, he reads a lot, he thinks a lot, he's a scholar, and he's thinking of ways in which Noma can influence the conversation about food and the environment for a long time. I mean, the last time I was there a few weeks ago, he was serving the Plant Kingdom menu. This is essentially a vegetarian menu um, at the best restaurant in the world. There is no, that's not an option. It is the menu during the summer. It's a vegetarian menu involving some insects because he, you know, offers the idea that insects are part of the plant kingdom. So there's some ants, there's some bees that you eat. Um, my friend Rich Roll, who's a, an author and podcaster, joined me at that meal and had a fully vegan version of the plant kingdom menu that Renee was thrilled to offer, you know? And I think that... I don't think Renee's alone in this, by the way. I think a lot of chefs right now, uh, Jose Andres, Daniel Patterson, Dan Barber, a lot of chefs are thinking about sustainability, the environment, um, the best use of soil, uh, what's best, you know, in terms of carbon foot, footprint. And um, I think we're going to see more and more all-vegetarian menus. Well, that's a perfect segue to what we're going to talk about in the second half. So we will be right back to delve into that and uh, get Jeff's take on American chef cultures we were just delving into. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by you. This is HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and I want to personally acknowledge you. Our entire 10-year history of groundbreaking food and beverage audio journalism has only been possible because of listeners like you. You usually hear from our incredibly supportive network of business partners during these show breaks, but this week, we're taking a moment to thank the thousands of individual donors who've been part of our family since the very start. You listen to HRN because you care not only about what's on your plate and in your glass, but how it got there and the stories of all the people, plants, and animals that contribute to the food supply chain. So please, this week, take a moment to show us what independent food radio means to you and become a member of HRN. Help us deliver another 10 years of storytelling that will shape the world during a critical time for politics, innovation, food ethics, and the planet. With your help, we can change the world and our food system one soundbite at a time. There's no food radio without you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate before July 31st to do your part to ensure a bright future for your favorite food podcasts. That's heritageradionetwork.org donate. From all of us at Heritage Radio Network, we thank you for your vision and generosity from the bottom of our hearts. Welcome back. We're talking to author and food and drinks editor for Esquire magazine, Jeff Gordonier, about his new book, Hungry, a memoir of his time spent with one of the best chefs in the world, Rene Redzepi of Noma in Copenhagen. So you, you've you written about Redzepi gathering this, you know, in the book and in some of your articles before that, how Redzepi gathered the different veteran and rising star chefs, and a lot of whom are American, and cooked with them. And so I was curious what your take is of how he's influenced. We talked about a little bit about it at the top of the show, this sort of follow-on restaurants in New York, but maybe even bigger picture than just, you know, foraging-related restaurants. What do you think his influence has been on American chefs? 
<clears throat> That's a big question. I think his influence uh, exists largely as a kind of beacon in the same way that in any cultural field you have creative people who represent the vanguard, right? I mean, in the 80s, in music, it might have been Prince. You know, in the 70s, it might have been David Bowie. Uh, in the 70s, in film, it might have been Martin Scorsese. You know, you have, you have people who are pushing the envelope and, um, you know, forging a new conversation. Rene Redzepi is that person in the food world right now. He has been really for, for the past decade. And um, so I think he's influenced American chefs in terms of amping up the dialogue about issues that are important to him that have to do with the environment and conduct in the kitchen and things like that. I don't, I think more and more we're not seeing attempts to fashion new Nordic cuisine in the U.S. And I think that's probably a good thing. I think what's a better idea is to think, um, okay, Rene has pioneered this new language, this new way of talking about and cooking food. How can I internalize some of those ideas and then manifest them in my restaurant in a new way that a way that's not copying you know a way that's um autobiographical and soulful and represents where i'm coming from i think you're starting to see more and more examples of that yeah we were talking about before the break you were mentioning his plant-based menu and that that i feel especially amongst prominent chefs um they're not only thinking about it, thinking about their menus or putting it uh, menus together like that. Do, do you kind of feel like that's what you're seeing as well? Is that when they're thinking about sustainability, they're 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 thinking about that? Yeah, I think that chefs are actually many of them, certainly not all, as we have seen, but many of them are very conscientious about political issues and cultural issues um, for decades. Chefs didn't really have a voice. They were in the kitchen cooking, and they would come out in their chef's whites now and then and say hi to everybody, right? And now, over you know, because of the rise of food TV, uh, the ongoing fascination with cooking, the way that, that chefs have become cultural figureheads, um, I think many of them have decided to make the most of that moment and try to convert it into a positive thing. Um, you know, I think there has rightly uh, been a lot of questioning of the celebrity chef idea, that concept, you know, because we've unfortunately seen that some chefs have abused that. They have abused that position of fame and power, and that's odious. Um, I would make the argument that there, there are also chefs who have done something positive with it. You know, look at Jose Andres. Obviously, he's a, a celebrity chef. He's one of the most famous chefs in the world. He's used that position to help the people of Puerto Rico, the people of Houston. Now he's feeding people all over, you know, who have who have suffered through uh, natural disasters. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful thing, right? So I think I, I think that celebrity itself is not the enemy. The enemy is abuse of power, right? And I and I love seeing chefs like Jose and Dan Barber and Dominique Crenn and Renee Redzepi standing up for good things and, and kind of making sure that, uh, that we make a priority of these issues. 
Yeah, it's like with 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 great power comes great responsibility. There you go. I mean, there you know, it's a, it's a it's a well worn phrase, but it's true. And um, I think we need to celebrate the chefs who who are using power responsibly. I mean, you know, when I hear people say, "Oh, I'm sick of celebrity chefs. I wish that would just end." I have to tell you something. I hear a little a little note of Downton Abbey in that. You know, I I hear a little bit of snobbiness, like, well, I wish chefs would just go back in the kitchen and not be famous. I mean, really? Is that what you're saying? I mean, if musicians get to be famous and athletes get to be famous and movie stars get to be famous and rich, why can't chefs? I don't see anything wrong with it. I think it's lovely. I think everyone should have that opportunity. Um, well, well but, it's like the state. State. It's like the state of the world, right? Half the world wants it to go back fifty years, and the other half is really eager for the future. And there's like no one left in the middle. Yeah. Well, let's go to the future, and let's let you know. Let's. I mean, like for instance, we are in an extremely exciting moment in America with food. <clears throat> Part of it has to do with finally. It's been long overdue the celebration of black chefs in America. We're seeing James Beard Award-winning chefs like Eduardo Jordan, Mashama Bailey, Kwame Anwuachi, J.J. Johnson, Eric Williams at Virtue in Chicago. Everyone should try to go there if they can. Uh, B.J. Dennis. Um, I mean, the list goes on. All these chefs who are telling stories about the African diaspora through food, um, these these are people who are incorporating history and culture in an incredibly important way into their menus, essentially. Um, I, I honor that. I, I raise a toast to that. That's a beautiful thing. It's, mu- it's about much more than, you know, a night out and what we're going to order from the menu. It's about uh, the ongoing conversation about what America is supposed to be, right? So um, I don't want to see celebrity chef culture end. I want to see it evolve. Well, and in fact, a lot of those people you're very in the know are not yet household names or maybe Mashama because you've been on chef's table. But yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Is that the direction you see chef culture going rather than because I feel like we're maybe on the verge of a backlash against the hedonism that a Michelin starred menu represents and and also against the obsessive Instagramming of food. Do you think the new frontier is where so many people have access and capability of, still so many don't, but more than ever, a greater number of people have access to really good food and really good ingredients. Is that where we move toward when you're dining out, it's more about storytelling and experience than just what's on the menu? There's a huge shift underway. Anyone who reads anything in food media should be aware of that. It's, it's pretty obvious, right? But that shift is only natural. It's what happens in culture, in all realms of culture. Um, it's important to remember that some of these chefs who now have like a million followers on Instagram started out at the bottom. You know, David Chang is a force in global gastronomy. But the guy started out at Momofuku Noodle Bar with no customers, you know, in the East Village, thinking he was about to go broke. I remember, because I went there with Pete Wells when the place was just starting out. We, we weren't, you know, known food writers then. We were colleagues at Details Magazine. And I thought it was the best, it was just the most delicious food, you know, I'd ever had. And I we sat right in front of Chang at a counter. And man, that guy was angry. He was like swearing and fussing and, you know, he was sweating. He was just like trying to make this work, you know. 
Renee Redzepi, when he opened Noma with Mads Refslund, uh, it was it was often it had there were all these slang dismissals of the restaurant in Denmark and throughout Europe, like the stinky whale and the dead whale and things like that. He has told me numerous times that the restaurant for long stretches of time was empty. Empty. Okay? Like he would have entire nights where he'd prepared this whole revolutionary menu and he didn't have a single customer. Okay? So, you know, there was a struggle for them too. And then they built and built and built and broke through. And it's going to happen again with new voices coming up, whether, you know, it's Misty Norris in, in, in Dallas, Texas, or uh, Kwame Amuachi in Washington, D.C. I mean, there's all sorts of new voices coming up. That's just regenerative and positive. That's just the way culture keeps the conversation going. So, Yeah, I was also going to ask you, because I know you've written about Gen Xers before, and I feel like it, it's worth pointing out that, at least to me, one of the reasons we have this unbelievable blossoming of of food the food revolution but also it's because the current generation my generation and i think yours has lived in a time of relative stability and plenty compared to any other there's not been any major global war that interrupted the food system and that could really change but right now it's not yet looking like that so do you see barring that, that millennials and Gen Z will have a different approach to this time of plenty and abundance? Or or what do you think? Well, I think that idea of a time of plenty is relative. Okay. Personally, I will come clean and admit that I grew up with tremendous privilege myself, right? Um, I will say that Gen Xers as a whole did not. You know, we lived, when I graduated from college in 1988, the stock market crashed badly October 19th, 1987, in my senior year, right? So when I came out, there weren't any newspaper jobs for me. I mean, things, jobs were drying up across all different fields. Stock market crashed again in 2000, the big dot-com crash. Then there was 9-11, a complete economic meltdown in 2008. I mean, it looks like stability, but for a lot of Gen Xers and millennials, uh, there's an ongoing struggle just to pay the rent and just to stay afloat and just to do the work that you love. And a lot of the great restaurants that we talk about now in Revere actually started from a place of austerity and need and desperation. I mean, I think Momofuku Noodle Bar was essentially a, a huge risk, uh, you know, and, and um, this... You know, relative stability, I mean, you know, like we haven't been in a, a global war, but I mean, there, there have been a lot of crises along the way. I'm 52 years old. I've, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of them and I've experienced a lot of them. And I'm, a, I'm in, a, in a business in publishing that's, that's in a continual struggle, as we know. So, I, you know, I don't feel like um, it's been easy <laughs> well, in that okay. regard. You, you know, I'm, I, I'm sorry you that doesn't re- answer your question the way you want it, but it's, no, it's no, like, I, I, I don't I mind think... having my. But I'm going to push back though because I understand yeah. what you're saying. You just reminded me. I also graduated from college and graduate school both times into a recession. Amazing. And so I, yeah. I know what you're we trying. I would definitely say there's been upheaval. Yeah. But 
it's different than, for instance, when I talk to not so much my parents who are a little younger, but my wife's parents who's a little bit older, who you know was born in a child during World War II, where you know she reminded me that chicken was a luxury because there was just not massive chicken production, and that you know things like World War II and other events like that before significantly interrupted either the global supply of food or production and that kind of really gigantic shock has not happened you know yes people had less money or had hardships but comparatively to human history it was still a time of abundance oh yeah absolutely i mean i in terms of a backlash i think that part of the backlash i am sensing has to do with this idea of certain restaurants that are engineered solely for the 1%, right? Like, they're restaurants for rich people, and that's their purpose, okay? And I would argue that Noma and, say, Momofuku Co., which is David Chang's tasting menu restaurant with Sean Gray heading the kitchen there, I would argue that rich people do go to those restaurants, of course, you know, but they were not built for rich people. Like, that's not the purpose of the restaurants. The restaurants are meant to express something through food and actually have a much more democratic sensibility. When I have gone to Noma every time, people have said, well, what should I wear? It's so funny, you know? It's like, should I wear a tie and jacket? <laughs> you know, should I get my shoes shined? You know, and, and I'm like, no, man, you wear whatever you want, you know? Like, I often wear a suit because I'm a geek, but um, my friend Ian Daly, he, he went to Noma in a ripped concert t-shirt and like ripped jeans and combat boots or something. And he felt totally at home. It's, uh, it's not fancy in that regard, you know? So um, understandably, people feel excluded from a certain kind of restaurant that seems like the height of luxury and, uh, you know, seems like its purpose is simply to, you know, entertain the ultra wealthy, but um, there are those restaurants and then there are other restaurants, you know, and, and I also, you know, I think like eating at Noma is expensive, you know, but it, but so is going to Hamilton, you know, on Broadway or so, so is going to see the Rolling Stones. I mean, there are people who can't afford it, who still save up the money for a fancy night out or to go to Hamilton or something like that. And they think it's worth it because it's transporting, you know, I would argue that. Well, it's a, it's a special experience. I mean, most yeah. people would not even have money. You don't go to, Noma's not a place that, I, I, I don't know if Renee says that or not, but you eat in every night. I mean. No, you don't need to eat there every night. I think that would be an ordeal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, no, but, it was but, interesting that you say that because I, I, I went to the Ledbury in London, which is one of the best, I would say, best restaurants in London. And I was really struck by there was a review. It, it doesn't have a dress code. And one of the things I saw online said there's no dress code, but I wouldn't wear jeans because people dr get you know dressed up in the, whatever dressed up means to them because it's a special experience and a special place. But then I was also struck by the fact that going into it, it was very comfortable. You didn't feel like you weren't welcome, and it was a great balance of that. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Oh, it, that, you know, Todd, that's that nails it. I mean, really, it is. It's how welcomed you feel. Do they make you feel at home? Is everyone? And that is I think, everyone that I think is a there? big change in fine dining from absolutely. twenty years ago. Oh, absolutely. I mean, growing up, yeah. you know, my my dad uh, when he made it 
in the corporate world, uh, sort of badge of honor for him was to take us to fancy restaurants, you know? And um, if he perceived that kind of snottiness, that kind of old school white tablecloth, you know, upturned nose snottiness toward us, he, he would... He was like enraged, you know, um, because he felt like, wait a second, this should be like we have access to this. We, we, we should be treated the same as everyone. And I think one of the revolutions that we've experienced over the last 10, 15 years through figures like Rene Redzepi and David Chang is a, a democratizing. A, a, I can never say that word right, but, you know, m- making the fine dining experience more democratic. Um, so and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I think restaurants essentially should make you feel at home, no matter what kind of restaurants they are. And that's, those are the ones I'm looking for, for my Esquire Best New Restaurants list. Whatever, whether it could be Carnitas Lonja in San Antonio, Texas, where you, know, you pay 10 bucks to get some beautiful Carnitas tacos and you sit on a picnic table out back. Or it could be Bar Cren, Dominique Cren's wine bar, which is, uh, you know, punitively expensive. Um, I liked them both. I, th- I felt at home at both. I thought there was warmth and beauty and soul, you know. So it's not just the price range. It's sort of like the, the ethos of the place. I'll throw Tacos Por Favor in Santa Monica into that. They now have more than one location. Right on. Kind of... Right on. All right. So have you been influenced by Rene Redepi and Noma? Is foraging for you? Who do you think are today's most influential chefs? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org to let us know. After the break, Jeff's going to reveal his Julia moment. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's Immortal Worlds, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Jeff, your turn. What's your Julia moment? I'm so thankful for this opportunity. So I grew up in Pasadena, like I said, which is was where Julia Child herself grew up. And I grew up with my mother making you know, dishes from Julia's books. But what really moved me recently was that my 13-year-old son, Toby, saw Julie and Julia, the film, right, that, that involves Julia Child. And he was so mesmerized by this film that he told his mother, my, my ex-wife, that he wanted to start working his way through Julia's canon, right? And so he, the next day with, with uh, Julie, who happens to, my ex-wife happens to be named Julie, so it was like a Julie and Julia moment. He cooked beef bourguignon with her. And um, I realize that's not something from one of Julia's shows or something, but I found it very moving that her legacy goes on, you know, that she continues to have an influence on a new generation of, of kids, essentially, who find her just as delightful and just as inspiring as I did, as my mother did, as my grandmother did, you know, I think the Julia Child influence is going to last a long time in this country. And uh, I just thought that was great. That is great. That yeah. music to our ears, and we'll call it a Julia, Julie, and Toby moment. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for that, and thank you so much for, for joining us today. 
Thank you, Todd. This has been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Likewise. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Keep up with us, as always, on social media. Search at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N, on Twitter. Jeff's book is Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World by Jeff Gordonier. Just released from Tim Duggan Books, which is a Random House imprint. It's available, of course, online or at your favorite bookseller. If you want to connect with Jeff on social media, he's at Jeff Gordonier, which is G-O-R-D-I-N-I-E-R on Twitter or at The Gordonier on Instagram. And if you want to check out more about Jeff's work as an author and a journalist, you can visit jeffgordonier.com. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer, the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network today, who's Amanda. And our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.